Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Sedalia, Missouri. In this sermon, Pastor Chris Guffey continues his series, No Regrets, No Reserve, No Retreat. Join us as we dive in to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to 2 Corinthians and chapter number 4. And again, I'm going to look at verses 7 down to the close of the chapter, although we're going to spend the majority of our time in verses 7 down to verse number 10. And uh, if you have your Bibles there, you can turn with us. As I look out this morning, I see a number of new faces and guests. We're glad you're visiting with us here this morning. Hope that you'll make Cornerstone your home. Uh, We are excited that you've uh, chosen to come and worship with us on this day. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, and again, verses 7 down to verse number 12, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed." always carrying out in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Verse 11, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the Apostle Paul's message to the Corinthians here, specifically in just this chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Speaking on the subject matter of having no regrets, no reserves, and no retreats. We've seen how the Apostle Paul viewed the people of Christ, specifically there in Corinth, as those who live without a regret. That is, that they don't live as people who are controlled by the past. They don't live as people who have reserves, that they are worn out for the sake of the gospel. And they live as a people who are without retreat. They were not going to go back to the old way of doing things But because of Christ, we live as those who have been changed by the gospel and we are new and different. And all of those things he saw in the Corinthians are things that we could speak about today and have spoken about today, that we are supposed to be a people who indeed don't look over our shoulder at the past, who indeed are willing to be worn out for the sake of the gospel in in the midst of a dying world, and as a people who are unwilling to accept retreat as an option, but rather as a people who are always pressing forward with gospel proclamation until the end of time, until Jesus comes back as a people who live victoriously in this life, believing that we have a responsibility, a job to do in God's kingdom business of presenting the gospel and proclaiming it until Jesus comes back. In this section of Scripture, he's laid out the challenges that were meeting the Corinthians and thereby the same challenges that we meet today in 2022. You could make them pretty simple. The first challenge that we face is that we live today in a hostile environment. Paul talks about how the ruler of this world had, in verse number 4, blinded the minds of those who are perishing. That is, that they were really people who lived without wisdom, without understanding. They were a people who walked around, as it were, having been blinded or blindfolded to the reality of the world in which they lived. There's so much darkness, you might say it like this, that there's so much darkness around the Corinthians, there's so much darkness around us as Americans in 2022, as Christians in 2022, that those who are without Christ just really don't see where the end of all things is headed, where the end of time is headed, and what the pitfalls and the dangers are that we're walking headlong into as a culture. They don't see the desperate state that we live in. And furthermore, he said that there was a second challenge, and that is that the evil in this world has so consumed the hearts and the minds of people 
that what happens is that it seems like there's no way for the church to see where there's hope or where there might be advancement. And so Paul pictured the Corinthians as those who were living in a dark and evil world in a dark day, blinded, having been blinded by the ruler of this life. They were living as those who had committed themselves to Christ, but they were living in a retreat. And he wants to challenge them to get out of that retreat mentality, and he challenges us to do the same. But when he lays out those challenges, he also lays out the commission of the church. What is it that the people of Christ are supposed to be doing? And that is that we are to press forward, that we don't press forward through self-exaltation. That is the way of this world, but rather that in verse 5, that the church is supposed to be a people who are pressing forward, proclaiming not ourselves, but we are to be proclaiming Jesus Christ. In the midst of a world uh, that is just all about self and, and has fallen into the temptations and the traps of the darkness of evil, of the rejection of God and Creator, in that, Paul says that we are to be a people who don't proclaim ourselves, but we are to be a people who meet that hostile environment head on and to proclaim Jesus Christ to make Him famous. In that opening salvos there of chapter 4, I've used illustrations to try to set an image that I wanted you to have in your mind, that we might adopt a mindset, if I could put it in those words, of how it is that we advance forward. And maybe you remember some of those illustrations. I confess to you that sometimes the hardest part about preaching is finding ways to illustrate things, and uh, because oftentimes people will remember your illustration more than they'll remember the truth you were trying to proclaim in it, Right? But I've used a couple of illustrations over the last few weeks to develop a mindset. Remember, we spoke about how Alexander the Great, upon his disembarkation in Persia, decided to burn his ships, and he told his men that they would either return on Persian ships or they would not return at all. And I use that as an illustration to speak of our need as believers in Christ, as a part of God's kingdom business, to be about the business of advancing the gospel. There's no retreat in God's kingdom. And the importance of the gospel is so great that either we will move forward in this culture, shining as the light of Christ in the midst of the darkness, or we will die to given our lives to its importance, because in Christ there is no turning back. Then from there, the next week, I illustrated the phony war, and I spoke about how the church has lived in this period where we knew that we were at war with the spread of the darkness, but instead of advancing, we retreated and we took defensive positions, almost gazing over at the enemy, wondering whether or not there would actually be any shells fired. Today, we're, I think, paying the reward of that position that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, because while we huddled together as God's people over the last 20 years or so, hoping that the darkness would not spread, the enemy was about the business of strategizing and advancing against positions that have been held for a long time. Over and over again, over the last several weeks, I've tried to illustrate through history the mindset that must be adopted by the church, that we are an advancing people. We are a marching army. We used to write songs about it that we would sing in our hymnals about uh, stand up, stand up for Jesus, right? You soldiers of the cross. We taught our children to sing songs about it in VBS, right? Uh, uh, I'm in the Lord's army. Okay, never mind. You remember these things. We, the church adopted a mentality once upon a time that we were an advancing people for the cause of Christ. But in the last 20 years or so, we just kind of developed a phony war mentality where we stood back 
And we watched the enemy with all of his schemes and plans. And we hoped that maybe Jesus would come back and we wouldn't see them to fruition. Talked about two weeks ago how our weapon against all of these things, all the schemes of the enemy, our weapon against a culture in decay, our weapon against broken families, our weapon against a culture in chaos, our weapon against the spread of evil, the weapon that we have to fight the battle that is in front of us, church, and we will win is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. So if I can once more this morning, I want to illustrate a mindset that I want us to adopt as we come into the Apostle Paul's words. We are a people who live in a time when the depravity of sin has spread so much, when the darkness has taken such a hold, a foothold into our culture and our world, that oftentimes, if you're like me, you feel like there can be no real victory. We understand that Christ is our victory. We understand that Christ has already secured our victory in His death upon the cross and subsequent resurrection from the dead. But honestly, as I look around the world many times, as I watch the news I see no real hope except the end of all things. I'm just kind of biding my times oftentimes. It's just biding the time trying to wait for Jesus just to come back. I oftentimes think to myself, you know, this world is really beyond hope. But by nature, that's not who we are as a people. In fact, God designed human beings as generally hopeful people. It's why we love stories of heroic encounters. One of those such encounters in history took place in what would become known as the Battle of the Bulge in 1944. It's been easier to illustrate this series because it's gotten me back into my sandbox of history. Deep in the Ardennes Forest of Belgium, Germany was in full retreat. The war was really, for all intents and purposes, over, just both sides didn't quite know it yet. The Soviet was advancing, forces were advancing from the east and the allied American British soldiers had stormed the beaches of Normandy, liberated France, and they were moving against the Nazi powers from the west. The fall of the Nazi powers seemed imminent. It was just not, it was not a matter of if, but a matter of when. When would this happen? So shortly before Christmas in 1944, basically all sides seemed to settle in for, into their positions for the winter months and as snow and fog covered the area, making advancement, was, or advancement became essentially impossible to do. But you see, the enemy on, that day, in, on those days, those months in 1944, they had other plans. Unbeknownst to the Allies, the Germans were furiously planning, planning a counteroffensive against the Allied troops. They knew that the Allied army had a problem that, 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 that was predictable. You see, the Allied forces, when they had invaded Normandy, made a decision. Dwight Eisenhower made the decision that in order to invade uh, continental Europe, they would have to dis- destroy railways and infrastructure in order to keep the Germans from being having the ability to flood more troops to the front lines. But in so doing, while they did liberate France, they also destroyed the very systems that would carry their products to the front line as they moved forward. In other words... They had created their own problem in that they were having issues, supply chain issues, moving troops, ammunition, and medical supplies and food forward. So with their troops low on everything from food to ammunition, the American troops drug into their defensive positions, and they waited for their commanders to find a solution because who would surely uh, march a counteroffensive in the middle of the winter? After all, the Germans weren't going anywhere. Quietly, the Germans, however, moved 18 infantry divisions and 12 armored divisions from their eastern front to the western front without anybody noticing. 
That means that the Americans in December of 1944 were outnumbered some 400,000 German troops to 200,000 American troops. They were outnumbered 557 tanks to 483, 667 tank destroyers to 499, 13 infantry divisions against 6 infantry divisions. And from a pure manpower perspective, unbeknownst to the Allies, the German forces had heavily outmanned and outgunned them, out, uh, uh, had, had overwhelmed them. On the, the, on the 16th of December, 1944, the Germans caught the Americans asleep at the wheel and they began their assault. For the next 40 days, some of the bloodiest fighting of all of World War II would take place. Germany would lose somewhere between 63,000 and 98,000 men, 554 tanks and 800 aircraft. The Americans would lose about 89,500 men, 733 tanks and 1,000 aircraft. For the first 10 days in what would be known as the Battle of the Bulge, the Germans pushed forward. In one campaign, the Germans took on the United States 99th Infantry Division, outnumbered 5 to 1 on that day. The Americans did their best to defend their ground. They inflicted casualties, uh, some historians believe, at a rate of 18 to 1. Even though they were outnumbered 5 to 1, they were taking 18 German soldiers for every one American killed. But after 10 days, they effective, their effective strength had been demolished by some 80%. They were operating at 20% capacity and were getting ready for retreat. Some of the worst fighting then would happen around a little town known as Bastogne, and you've, I'm sure, seen this somewhere along the way. There, a spent American force composed of men from the 101st Airborne Division, as well as others, was told, you must hold your ground right here. You must hold this line. Low on ammunition, food, medical supplies, and even winter clothing, they dug into their foxholes. The Germans, knowing that their force was superior, decided that they would send four men carrying a white flag, two junior officers and two higher officers, on December the 22nd to the American forces on Arlon Road. When they arrived, they had a message. It was a simple but direct message. They told the, 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 the private that, that encountered them in his foxhole that they had a message to deliver to the supreme commander, and that message was, surrender or be massacred. We know that we have you outnumbered. When the message was delivered to Brigadier General Anthony McAuliffe, one famous scene in history takes place. He was actually fast asleep in his, in his sleeping quarters, and his chief of staff simply comes in and says, the Germans have notified us that they are ready for our surrender. To which McAuliffe famously replied, and it goes down in history as, nuts. <laughs> We're not going to surrender, right? The Americans would eventually hold on. In fact, General Patton's army would cut a supply route into Bastogne. They would relieve the wounded. They would fortify the American position. And they would push back to German army. And in many ways, it really was the end of the Third Reich. Now, when we hear stories about that, like that in history, they we love those stories because they remind us of those moments in time when a very few amount of people stood against a very large army and were able to win. Jesus promised that his army would be outnumbered by the enemy church. In fact, he promised that narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And then he promised, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. The truth is that while we await the return of Christ, those who are in Christ will always be outnumbered by those who are out. 
And by simple experience, we know that the enemy has the people of Christ outnumbered on a daily basis. And as we see the darkness spread around us, we wonder, can we mount a successful defense, perhaps even an offensive? Stories like that from history remind us that it's not about the number of men, right? That it's about something else. That defeat doesn't necessarily have to be inevitable. But if you walk away this morning with the belief that we simply need to have more courage, then I will have failed as a pastor. You see, what got those men through in the battle of the bulge is not what the message that the Apostle Paul proclaims in 2 Corinthians 4 is. The stories like the Battle of the Bulge are built upon a premise, and that premise is that courageous men stand their ground against all odds outnumbered by their foe and through sheer will and strength win victories. The message of the gospel that Paul would proclaim to the Corinthians and reiterate here in 2 Corinthians 4 is actually quite different. The message that he preaches to them is not that we will win through sheer courage and will, but rather we will win, in fact, on limited strength. In fact, we have no strength at all. In fact, our strength is even more limited than those who would fight so bravely in the Ardennes Forest some 80 years ago. You see, this morning, beloved, the Apostle Paul knew that if we were to win the battle, it would must come from a power and a strength that was not within us, or of our own making, but a power that was given to us. I want to stop at this moment and say that in the midst of the world in which we live, I know and I am recognizant this morning of the fact that I preach to wounded and weary soldiers on a weekly basis, and today is no different. Some more than others, but many in the, within the sound of my voice are worn out. You're tired. Life has beaten you down. Life has been rough on you. We are a people hard-pressed on every side, and oftentimes we feel like the world has just been flung into chaos. And like a child desperately holding on to an amusement ride, oftentimes we feel as though we are those who are just hanging on for dear life, hoping the best can happen. We're worn out by the advance of darkness. We're worn out by a culture that's in chaos. We're worn out by families that are broken. We're worn out by sickness and disease. We're worn out by substance abuse. We're worn out by violence on the streets and in our safe places. The constant fighting in the world around us between our politicians and our friends alike simply makes us wounded and weary and worn out soldiers in the kingdom of Christ. We're just plainly and simply wounded, worn out, and weary and tired of the battle. To those soldiers, Paul wrote here in chapter 4 and verse number 7, one of the more encouraging lines in all of the New Testament. He said, but, and I love those in Scripture, they remind us that all of the bad news we might have heard does not need to be the epitaph upon our life, but rather that there might be good news right around the corner. He says, but, even though you are wounded and worn out and weary, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, he writes, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. To those soldiers, Paul wrote some encouraging lines. In the simplest of terms, the answer to our weariness, the answer to the Corinthian weariness, the answer to a culture that wears us out is not us, but rather the answer rests within us. Paul uses the descriptor of treasure to speak of the gospel. 
If we went a few verses back to where we've been preaching in the previous weeks, that point has been made so clearly as he speaks about God shining his light two weeks ago into the midst of the darkness. Beloved, our treasure, our worth, our identity this morning is not found in us or our strength. Our treasure, our worth is found in something that he has given to us, the light in the midst of the darkness. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ stepped down from heaven above in all of eternity to live with man below and to die my death on the cross of Calvary on my behalf. By way of comparison, Paul says that while we have a treasure inside of us, we are but jars of clay. Some translations this morning read earthen vessels. Both translations convey the same truth. And that is that the Apostle Paul is picturing ordinary An earthen vessel, a jar of clay, was a typical, it was a plain, it was an ordinary container used in in the house of, of the old world for everything from storing cooking ingredients to also storing refuse to be taken out into the trash. It was something that was used for for literally all kinds of jobs around the house. It was plain. It was not the fine china you got on your wedding day or the crystal that you got on your wedding day. It was that stuff you bought at Walmart, right? That was used to to let the dogs drink water out of and then cleaned up and put the cereal for the kids into. Oh, none of you do that? It was ordinary. It was plain. It was simple, right? They were not anything special. That he would use this speaks of what the message that he wants to convey, and that is that it's not who you are, but it's something that you hold that gives you your value. If an ordinary clay pot, if an earthen vessel were broken in their day, it was not a big deal. It was just thrown away. But as Mama always said, it's not the wrapping that matters, but what's on the inside that's important. This is the failure of our personal theology oftentimes in our world today. You see, we live in a time and an age where self-help has worked its way into Christian circles and we want to build ourselves up. We want to find strength in our own greatness. That's why uh, books are so popular that talk about all the things to make you better, to make you more about yourself. But Paul actually preaches the exact opposite message here in 2 Corinthians 4 to his wounded and worn out soldiers. He is essentially saying, you are not the treasure. It is not you that is of value in this moment, but it is Jesus Christ whom you hold inside. In fact, I would say it like this oftentimes in 20 years of ministry is that there's really no value, nothing good in me whatsoever except that which is given to me, the treasure that I hold inside. And the old hymn writer would say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Rather than running from his pain, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in verse 8, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. Hard-pressed is what he's speaking about. We are being pushed in on every side. And even in the midst of that, he's saying we are not crushed into uh, like a recycling uh, container might do, but rather we are still there. We have not broken down. We are perplexed, confused, uh, misunderstood, but we are not driven to despair to a point where we don't know what to do. Verse 9, we are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. As you go through that list, you see everything from the persecution that was certainly facing the Corinthians and the Roman world as literally Christians were being 
they're having their lives demanded of them for their faithful commitment to Christ. But you see everything from that far extreme of persecution to just the difficulty of life itself. Life is tough, isn't it, church? catches us unaware, it catches us unexpected. Things happen that we might never have imagined. In the midst of that, Paul speaks to all that full gamut of understanding. You're wounded and worn out and you're weary and for a thousand different reasons this morning. Maybe you're wounded and worn out and weary because, well, it was just a busy week. The kids kept you running a thousand different directions. Maybe you're wounded and worn out and weary because you got sick this week and and it, it knocked you off of your feet. Maybe you're wounded and worn out and weary because somebody separated from you, treated you wrong, young student, because of your faithful commitment to Christ. He goes across the entire spectrum. He describes life and how difficult life is. And in the midst of that, he says, you know, hey, listen, but that doesn't mean that we have been abandoned. It doesn't mean we've been destroyed. It doesn't mean that we're in despair. It doesn't mean that we have been crushed. When I go through that list, you see everything. But it makes me think about the Apostle Paul and his own testimony to the Corinthians. We know that the early church was persecuted. I spoke about this several weeks ago now. We know that the Apostle Paul ran for his life as he shares with the Corinthians that he was imprisoned. We know that he was eventually killed for his faith. We can understand that persecution is supposed to produce in us a greater hope in the gospel, even if we don't know it on a firsthand level here in Sedalia, Missouri in 2022. Maybe we don't understand it through our own experience, but we've been on that mission trip. We've seen the video on Facebook. We've heard from others who have experienced it firsthand. But what about just the everyday struggles of life? When those happen, when we feel overwhelmed, are those for God's glory as well? Are those for God's redemptive purposes in my life? Are those things for the proclamation of the gospel in me? And Paul says that because of our treasure inside, no matter what strikes at you this week, no matter what strikes at you this year, you may have the confidence that you will not be broken down. The word he uses for afflicted, it speaks of one who's being chased after. I like what A.T. Robertson said about this. He said that he had the word picture of a hunter, that somebody was hunting you. But then comes that little word perplexed. What does perplexed mean? It means to be questioning, concerned, confused. In other words, the apostle doesn't deny that believers are confused from time to time. Instead, he says that when we're confused, we are not driven to despair. He goes the whole gamut across. Everything from the believer, the soldier who feels like he's being hunted by the enemies of Christ to the one who's just looking at the world saying, I don't understand, Paul is preaching to you. And what I love most there is found in verse number 10, how Paul connects all of that back to the person and work of Jesus Christ as he writes that we are always carrying in the body the death of the Lord Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Let me give you the truth in simple terms this morning. For Paul, the suffering and pain of this life, church, is little more than becoming more like Jesus. I don't have great answers sometimes for why things happen, and I wish I did. I can give you theoretical answers. But Paul's girding theology in this moment is that whatever I'm going through, whatever pain, whatever suffering, no matter how difficult it may be, that I'm going through those things And God is sanctifying me in those things, and I'm becoming more like Christ, His Son, as they are carried out in my body. 
When people persecute me, I remember that they persecuted Jesus. It's an honor to be counted with him. When people speak ill of me, I remember they spoke ill of him. It is an honor to be counted with him. When I'm tired, I remember that Jesus experienced moments in his ministry of tiredness, of weariness. Some of the most encouraging lines in the Gospels is that Jesus simply fell asleep, that he was tired. That that reminds me that the Son of God got tired just like I do. I am honored to be counted among him. When I'm tired and worn out, I remember that he experienced those things. When I'm hungry, I remember that he was hungry in in the temptation and in the wilderness. And I'm honored to be counted among him. And somehow and in some supernatural way, Paul believed that as I experience these same things in life, that I am identifying with the person of Christ and his suffering on my behalf. Now, I want to be clear. Paul was not saying what later theology would develop, that in some way that suffering produces redemption in your life. That is, that through the suffering that I go through, that God takes out his pain or wrath against me and that that's how I'm redeemed. No, Jesus' death, his stripes, his suffering were what satisfied the anger and wrath of a holy God against me. But what Paul is saying is that my suffering offers nothing toward my own atonement, but what it does do is it makes me more like the person of Jesus Christ. It allows me to identify with him on a new and deeper level. I identify and deepen my faith in my own suffering. I have greater appreciation for the work of Jesus Christ in those moments. When I get worn out, I should have greater appreciation for what Christ has done for me. When I get worn out, I'm not exhausted because there's a power at work within me that's greater than myself, and that is the gospel, the power of Christ. I love the second half of verse 7. After he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay or in earthen vessels, he says, for a purpose, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Beloved, if you hear nothing of what I say this morning, I want you to hear this truth. Your life this morning is not your own. Your life, God gave you life for the glory of God. God gave you life to make Jesus Christ famous. I hope upon my passing one day that the epitaph written upon my days would be something along the lines of he was deeply flawed and he despite, despite those great flaws, Christ was somehow magnified in him. That's what I want said about me at the end of time. I I want to recognize and make no bones. Oftentimes, as you stand at funerals, we make angels out of villains, right? Oftentimes, we build people into images that they were never were. At the end of my time, I don't want any conversation about any, anything good that I ever did. In fact, I would suggest to you that if I've ever done anything good in my life, and if I ever do anything good moving forward, it will not be me doing it. It will be Christ in me. Because I know what a great sinner I am this morning. And so at the end of my time, I hope that it is simply said he was deeply flawed, but Christ made himself magnified in his life. The question then becomes how? How is that treasure shown? How is Christ magnified? Well, we understand that we shouldn't be broken in the midst of our weariness. We have a mental knowledge of it. How do I How do I not go into despair? How do I not get perplexed? How do I move from a knowledge that I shouldn't be despaired to the practice of actually not being despaired? How do I not get crushed? How do I not fall into despair? How do I not get forsaken? How am I not destroyed? 
And for that, I want you to go to the end in verse number 16. Paul writes, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Three fast points and I'll be done this morning. First, I want you to notice the declaration. Paul says, we do not lose heart. Paul doesn't question whether losing heart is an option. He doesn't say, we hope that we won't lose heart. He doesn't say, we hope that we won't be in despair. He says, we do not lose heart. He declares it as a certainty. What does he mean by lose heart? Throughout Scripture, heart is viewed as the seed of passion, of life, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. When the prophet describes the heart of a man as wicked, he's speaking about the wicked passion that lies within him, the wicked spirit, the wicked life, as it were. We are all great sinners. But the believer in Christ has a new heart, has a new passion, has a new spirit, has a new source of life that is brought to him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in other words, we don't give up on life. We don't lose our reason for living. We don't lose our passion. We don't lose real life. The abundant life that is offered in Christ Jesus through faith in Him, we do not lose heart. We do not lose that life just because our life has been thrown into turmoil. My basketball coach in high school might say, he got beat bad, but he didn't quit. Every illustration has a failing point, but I thought of this this week. Uh, I was thinking of riding a bicycle with a friend for the first time last year, and and he said, you know, I want to get into biking. I want to go on a bike ride with you. And I said, let's go for a ride, you know. And he says, now, I think I can probably keep up with you. After all, I'm in much better shape than you are and much better looking. And so I took that as a challenge, right? And I said, well, let's go for a ride, right? And And we rode for a couple of miles, two, three, four miles, whatever it was. And I looked back at him and I said, now remember, we've got to turn around and go back. So if we've gone three miles, then we're going to end up going six miles because we've got to go back. I'm not walking you back. I'm not carrying you back. And I said, so are you okay? Oh, absolutely. I'm doing fine, right? I, I've got it in the bag. My, my legs are fine. My, my bottom is fine. I'm doing just fine. You know, I'm, I'm with you, uh, heart and soul, right? Do whatever, as armor bearer says to, to Jonathan, do whatever's in thine heart. I am with you, heart and soul, right? Now, let's, let's keep going, right? So we went another couple miles, and I turned around, and I said, are you still doing okay? Absolutely. This is easy. I could ride a bike all day long, right? Apparently, that mentality went out at about the six and a half mile marker because now we've got to turn around and we've got to come back, which means that our trip will have been 13 miles. And I'm pretty certain as we rolled back into Cloverdale and I looked at him laying on the gravel that I may have broken my friend. And that was the last time he ever rode with me again. He said, you know, it wasn't that bad the first mile. It seemed like it was okay. It was a bit of a struggle, but the first mile wasn't too bad. The second mile, I didn't even notice. I actually thought I was gaining strength and getting better. The third mile, about the same. He said, about the fourth mile, when you asked, I thought to myself, you know, I am starting to get a little tired, but it didn't seem that big of a deal. And then the fifth mile and and sixth mile, and he said, then all of a sudden, when we turned around and got about a half mile back, he said, all of a sudden, it hit me. All of that abuse, all that I had gone through for the previous six and a half, seven miles, whatever it was, finally came crashing in. It caught up with me. I think that's a little bit like life is sometimes, isn't it, Christian? The first few miles, they don't seem like that big of a deal. Tragedy strikes, something difficult happens in life. 
doesn't seem like that big of a deal. You hit a little bump in the road and you're like, I can get through this. It's not that difficult. Then all of a sudden, as the miles begin to pile up, as we get a little older, as we go through experiences, sometimes it gets a little overwhelming, doesn't it? And that's almost as though Paul is speaking to that wounded and worn out soldier and saying, the more I get connected to Christ, the more I value that treasure in me, the more I adore the gospel, even in the midst of that road being long and difficult, the easier the ride becomes. Beloved, the miles never really get shorter. The terrain doesn't get easier. But what does happen is we do not lose heart. We do not lose our life, the abundant life that God has given to us in Christ because He's with us in the journey. Second, He acknowledges our human weakness. After He makes a declaration, He acknowledges our human weakness. He says that our outer self is wasting away. That's a really poetic way of saying that we are fading, we are failing, we are falling apart. Surely I can get a witness about that this morning, right? We are a people who are falling apart. I like what Tony Evans said one time when he said that our birth certificate is our death certificate. Isn't that encouraging, right? He said, for the first time in life, we cease to go from development to decay. He said, after we get our birth certificate, we go from the stage in life where we are developing and becoming something to a state of decay. We're falling apart from the birth on, and some of us are falling apart more than others, right? He acknowledges that human weakness. He says our outer self is wasting away. And I think that word choice is important. First of all, that word self. We have a really hard time disassociating who we are with how we feel often, even with our physical condition. Isn't it amazing how if you just don't feel good, it begins to do tricks on you. It begins to really make you think differently about who you are, who you are as a person. That's why funerals oftentimes are so difficult because even if we know that the person isn't there, but we see that body, when we look at that, that, that makes us feel weak. Our mind starts to hurt. We get worn out and weary. But it's that outer, that remember that we are earthen vessels. He's called us these jars of clay. That It's as though he's saying in this moment, this right here, what you see, this earthly body, even our earthly mind, maybe you don't see that, but you hear it come out in preaching, that these things, they are failing, they are passing away, they are being worn out. It's not even really who I am as a person. It's going to perish, right? But there's something that will be lasting. Second, then there's that word wasting. The picture is one of slow decay. The struggles of life, they generally don't suddenly come upon us and catastrophically destroy us. Normally what happens in life is we have all these small problems and they maybe a few big problems along the way, but it's the constant drip of decay. It's the constant drip of struggle that just wears us out. Or to put it in different terms, the human experience and existence is much more like a marathon. And not to be pessimistic, but it's like a death of a thousand pricks, right? And what that's what makes it so difficult. It's this constant drip. That's what's fading away. That's what's failing. That's what's passing. But and my third and final point this morning would be that the way that we battle that constant drip is through renewal of our inner self. You cannot separate all that from verse number seven. What is our inner self? In verse number seven, he said, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, in earthen vessels. The inner self, who I am, is the hope that I have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Beloved, we live in this world where psychology is spending all this time these days talking about identity and a person finding themselves. I had this conversation with a counselor just this week, and we were talking about how we have this focus these days on people identifying who they are. What are they? What are they at that inner self? And there's this struggle. Beloved, not to be too spiritual this morning, but you're at church, so I can be spiritual, right? I think that that identity crisis, that identity struggle, is because ultimately without Christ, they are earthen vessels with nothing inside. There is no identity. In this moment, Paul says, I'm really nothing. You see the earthen vessel. You see the outer garment. You see what's on the outside of me. But what I really am, my real value, is who I am in Jesus Christ. My value this morning is not being the pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church. My value is not coaching girls golf at Sedalia 200. My value is not being the husband of Kelly, the father of Isaiah and Zariah and Georgia. My value is not in a bike riding person. My value is not in going out and hunting in the woods. Those things are not my value. My value is that I am a child of the King, a blood-bought saint in Jesus Christ. That is my identity. That is my value. That's it. I have no other value. And I prove that literally on a weekly basis for our guests that are among us for the first time. Just come and I will show you how unvaluable I really am. The only value I have is the value that is bestowed on me. The only way for me to know who I really am is by knowing who I am through the person and work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. What is that hope that I have in the gospel? It is the confidence that the wrath of God, that what I was so deserving of because of sin, that the wrath of God that should be poured out upon me has been dismantled, paid for, and bought in the blood of Jesus Christ, and that I have an eternal home with Him, that I am sons and daughters of a great King, that I am a son and I am a brother in the person of Jesus Christ. Is that the guiding thought that brings us? It's that guiding thought that brings us to verse 17 and 18, where Paul will write to the Corinthians, the wounded, worn out, and weary soldier, for this light momentary affliction... It doesn't feel light very often, does it? It doesn't feel momentary very often. You have to go through years in many cases of a great struggle, but years of a great struggle in comparison to all of eternity and the glory that will be revealed is but a small drop of water in a very, very big ocean. An ocean without boundaries. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing me. It is getting me ready. It is packing my bags for an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, when I go through the struggles of this life, all God is doing is packing my bags, getting me prepared for a glory that will be revealed unto me that is beyond comparison. It's something I cannot even begin to comprehend in this moment. And he says, and because of that, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
In short, how do I fight against the constant drip of pain and weariness of life? How do I fight against the constant drip of being worn out and wounded? Paul's answer to that is, beloved, we must cherish the gospel. You know what you do with a treasure? You hide it from your kids. You tuck it away. You cherish it. Paul says, you you feel worn out. You feel weary. You've experienced loss. How do you get over that? You love Christ. You cherish Him. You cherish what has been given to you in His sacrifice and death. And I don't just cherish the gospel. I cherish it, Paul says, day by day. That's the English Standard Version translation. Today, that means I get up and I celebrate what I have in Jesus Christ. Too many wounded warriors and worn out saints only cherish Christ for an hour a week on Sunday morning. Paul is saying, if you want to get over that woundedness, that worn outness, that affliction of this present life, tomorrow morning you're going to have to get up and cherish Jesus. And then the next day you're going to have to cherish Jesus again. And the next day, you're going to have to cherish Jesus again. And we're going to have to celebrate each and every day, moment by moment, what you've received in Jesus Christ. Rinse and repeat until life is over. Let me conclude this morning. We are a worn-out church. We are a worn-out community. We are a worn-out nation. Being worn out, beloved, doesn't worry me. It's a burden on my heart, and when I have opportunity to meet with folks who are worn out, wounded, and weary. Certainly, I hurt for you as I see that tiredness, as I see that weariness in you. I oftentimes know that bad decisions come out of being worn out and weary. I like what Charles Stanley said one time when he was talking about how to keep yourself protected from bad decisions. He said, never let yourself get too tired. Never let yourself get too hungry. Never get yourself too worn out. Because when we get in those positions, that's when we make bad decisions. And so pastoring through those things with folks in your lives, I'm empathetic. It's a burden on my heart. I hurt for you. And I know that it's easy in those moments to make the wrong decisions. I know that oftentimes we think wrongly when we are worn out. We don't see the world as God would have us to see it. But being worn out has never worried me as a pastor. What worries me is when I see believers who are self-destructing because of that worn-outness, because of that weariness. There are only two possibilities in that moment. It's either because they aren't believers, that they've been playing a game, they don't understand, know, and cherish the gospel, and therefore their destruction is simple, right? It's, It's known, it's certain. They don't have the treasure inside. What we're seeing from our vantage point is just the earthen vessel being broken into pieces, Or the second possibility is that they just simply aren't intentionally daily renewing themselves by drawing from the treasure that's within them, the treasure of the gospel. They're hung up over divisiveness. They're hung up on politics. They're hung up on personal preference. They're hung up on personality. They're hung up on all of the shortcomings of life. They're hung up on the seen and not looking to the unseen. Instead of, now listen now, being hung up on the gospel, so many believers are hung up on everything else. Beloved, what Paul is saying to me, what I would say to you this morning, is that every day of my life, I need to take a withdrawal from the treasury of the gospel. I need to start the day cherishing Christ, 
And I need to cherish him again and again and again each and every time that my body begins to fade. This week I went through a, a drive through and an individual really felt passionately that he should get in front of me to get his food first. As God is my witness, he was wrong. And everybody knows that he was wrong. In fact, I honked at him to let him know that everybody knew that he was wrong. He got out of his car to discuss his wrongness with me. Or at least I thought that's what we were discussing. It turns out we were discussing my wrongness. I simply rolled down the window and I said, no English. <laughs> no, I, I wish I'd thought of that at the time. I didn't. I listened. And when he got done, he went back to his car and I got out. And I thought, I've got something I need to say to him. But something said, don't do it. That was Kelly holding my arm, dragging me back to the car, right? And instead, I walked up in front of his vehicle, and I tapped on the hood, and I stuck my credit card in the window, and I said, I'll take care of this one. When we got through the line, he stopped again, tears in his eyes, and he said, I need to tell you about my week. I said, listen, I've got food, and I don't want it to get cold. You've already ruined my day, man. He said, what do you do for a living? I said, I coach golf. I wasn't going to tell him I was a pastor, right? <laughs> Not after Kelly was honking the horn. That's how I remember it. I said, man, I said, I'm pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church. <laughs> I thought about saying another church, but I said, I'm pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church. We would love for you to come and visit with us, right? We'd love for you to come visit with us. That man this morning is in the audience. And I want you to know that we love you, that it's okay, and you may feel wounded and worn out and weary, but Christ will renew. In that moment, as I shared with him my even apologies for getting upset, I said, I want you to know that I'm going to preach on this this week. And I said, what I didn't do when you stole my place in line <laughs> was I did not draw from the treasury of the gospel. I did not ask what's most important here, Christ or getting up here first. Beloved, being renewed is not simply about being tougher. It's not about our feelings. It's not the 101st Air Air Airborne Division simply determining that they would not give another inch. Being renewed is about focusing my attention on the gospel. My invitation to you this morning then would be this, be renewed. Be renewed. Be refreshed. Be refreshed this morning. How do you do that? Thinking on what Jesus has done for you. You can do that on your knees at the altar where you lay down your burdens and reset your heart. You can do it where you are, where you don't focus on the words of a song or the habit of a schedule. You can do it by simply reminding yourself again of how good God is. You can do it by singing loudly His praise in an invitation song. But my challenge to you, wounded and worn out and weary soldier is renew yourself in the gospel this morning. You've been listening to Pastor Chris Guffey preach through his series, No Regrets, No Reserve, No Retreat. 
If you'd like to know more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can visit us on the web at www.cornerstonesedalia.com.